0: Well, we're going to discover the more that we get into this book of James, that James is very concerned that there is a consistency between that which we claim to know and that which we do. And the reason that James is insistent upon this is because it's what God actually insists. We saw this early on in week two of our series when we looked at the word that's translated as perfect. James uses the word perfect, the Greek word teleos which means to be mature or complete and i think an even better concept in james's mind is the word whole meaning we're not duplicitous in any way we are one unified person determined to be conformed to the image of christ we are people who pray the prayer of the psalmist that he prayed in psalm 86:11 teach me your way o lord that I may walk in Your truth. Unite my heart to fear Your name. Look at this prayer. This could start every one of your mornings. Every one of your days could be this prayer. Teach me Your way, O Lord, that I might walk in Your truth. Unite my heart to fear Your name. Teach me truth, but don't just teach it to me. Teach it to me so that I can walk in it, because I want a united heart, a whole heart. That reveres and respects and honors your name above everything else. I don't want a divided heart. I want the entirety of my life to be wholly devoted to you. I long to be whole. Now, that's what James is kind of getting at in in his topic of being whole or perfect or complete or mature. This might be our desire, but making it a reality is actually very, very hard. And James knows that. And that's why he writes the way he writes. James doesn't seem to want to add new theological categories for us to think in, like the Apostle Paul. James seems to prefer to challenge us to actually put to what we already know into practice. And this is why we've entitled the sermon series, From Knowing to Doing, because we actually have to do this stuff, because what we do demonstrates that's what we claim to know. And it's hard, and some lessons are worth learning again. So we're not surprised then in the book of James when we see familiar themes or similar themes repeated over and over again in his letter. We shouldn't be surprised at that. It's, it's actually reciprocal. He keeps coming back to some similar themes because he realizes that sometimes we need to be hit over the head just more than once before we realize the way we should actually go. At least that's it is for my life. I need to be like on repetition mode, right? I need to know what these things ought to do. And so this week, we aren't actually going to advance any further in our study than verse 12. Because verse 12, in some ways, acts like a capstone to what we've already studied. And I want to take just a few moments to unpack verse 12, so open there. And I want to find a biblical theme within the packaging of verse 12, that actually surfaces all throughout redemptive history, and I want to trace that theme all the way to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ today. So let's read the text, and then let's ask for the Lord's blessing on us, for those who seek to hear and obey it, and then also act on it. This is what James writes in James 1.12. He says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. God, we need your help. We seek to hear this. We seek to obey it. We seek to act on it. God, help us to see life-giving things in this passage of Scripture today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This verse, this verse is brimming with life-altering truth. And I've been praying for all of you this week that we see it all together. This is actually one of those Bible verses that I think every child of God would benefit greatly from if they committed it to memory. There is so much potential comfort and spiritual adrenaline that can flow through your whole being if this truth grabs hold of your heart. And maybe one of the surface reasons why we love this verse is because for those of you that are familiar with the Bible, it's nearly impossible to hear this verse, at least in its form, and not think immediately of his teaching strategy of Jesus as he opens up the Sermon on the Mount. Remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. "...for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." So on and so forth, ten times over. Blessings. This verse in James 1.12 just sounds like a teaching that would come out of the very mouth of Jesus. So maybe there's just a great deal of comfort because it reminds us of the One who once told us, "...let not your hearts be troubled." And we as sheep have trained our ears to hear His voice. But I want to look past the form of the teaching, and I want to look at the teaching itself to see what James is communicating to us. So let's unpack it phrase by phrase. Look at what it says. First of all, he says, blessed is the man. It's not just talking to men, but people in general. It's a generic invitation that's given out to all who have ears to hear his life-altering message. So, blessed is the man. And now we get to see who this blessed person is. The blessed person is, drum roll please, can you do that, you know, right? There you go, good, thank you Tatum, yes. The drum roll is this, the big reveal is the person who remains steadfast under trial. Ah. I thought it was going to be something good, James. Now, it's important to note that in this context, blessing doesn't mean emotional happiness. Your emotional state and your frame of mind will more than likely be affected by the trials that you face. We don't see a trial coming on the horizon and say, oh boy, what joy awaits me. Talk about a quick way to be irrelevant in the world. This is not what James is saying. And this isn't just an approaching trials with a glass half full instead of a glass half empty mindset. This blessed person comes upon a trial, and regardless of the circumstances they find themselves in, they endure the trial with a steadfast faith and a commitment to God's will for their lives. And if they do that, they consider themselves blessed with God's favor. This isn't just putting on a happy face all the time, even when you don't feel like it. This is actually getting down to the business of doggedly walking by faith and not by sight as you seek to follow after the man who is nicknamed man of sorrows. Do you get this? The blessed person's reasoning looks like this. If I can be acquainted with Him, even though I'm currently going through something that many, myself included, would label as suffering or trial, if I can be acquainted with Him, even in these moments, then I'm a blessed person. So even though I don't like the trial per se, bring it on. I'm blessed. And we already saw a few weeks ago that the trials that this blessed person faces or all of us face that we're standing up under, they come in a variety pack. It could be a physical illness. It might be a challenging relationship. It could be a set of of outside-of-your-control circumstances. It might even be the torture that you are facing on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis because of the consequences of your sin that makes you feel guilty. Or the torture you experience due to someone else's sin against you that makes you feel ashamed. Any and every trial ones that come to us from the outside, and trials that are crafted by our own design, irregardless of what type of trial it is, it is a trial nonetheless, but James says the blessed person is steadfast throughout the duration of it. And speaking of steadfast and enduring the trial, how long will we have to bear up under these trials Well, we have kind of a good news, bad news situation brewing here, and James gives us the bad news first. So how long is this trial that I'm going to have to endure, that I'm going to have to steadfast remain under, how long is it going to last? Well, he says it in the next phrase, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So let's give you the bad news first. The bad news is this, having stood the test is in the past tense, and the good news of receiving the crown of life is in the future tense. The phrase, "has stood the test, is in the past, and the phrase, will receive the crown of life, is in the future. So that tells me that all of this life is a test. The entirety of our life is one big experience of one trial after another after another it's like our life is one big trial factory and those trials are produced in a mass quantity and they just keep coming off the conveyor belt and placed in the mailing truck and they're constantly out for delivery to be dropped on the doorstep of our lives no wonder we don't want to check the mail it's all junk mail anyway right who wants that garbage i don't want the garbage of these trials in my life and when do we know that the trial is over and the crown of life is awarded? Well, it isn't this side of heaven. So that means the duration of your trials will be as long as you borrow breath from God. And the moment He cuts off your oxygen supply will be the moment that your trial is done. There you go. Are you happy to come to church today? Right? <laughs> I'll never go there again. Uh, I know it sounds rather bleak, but hold on a second. I want to remind you how James starts this passage off. How does he start it? With the word blessed. Blessed. Whoa. You can experience the favor of God right now during the trial and if you endure the trial to the very end by leaning upon His nearness to you even in the midst of the trial, you will experience the favor of God being given to you as He ushers you into His presence upon your death. So we get these words of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 10, Jesus' own words of encouragement to suffering Christians, he says this, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's what James is talking about and he rounds off this teaching by the last phrase in verse 12 when he says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So this is a binding promise from God. This isn't just some well I hope it works out for me type of thing. I think this is what the hymn writer of the song, Day by Day, was trying to communicate to us in the second verse when he says this, Every day the Lord Himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares He fain would bear and cheer me. He whose name is Counselor and Power, the protection of His child and treasure is a charge that on Himself He laid. As thy days thy strength shall be in measure. This is a direct quotation from the blessing of Moses on the tribe of Asher before they're entering into the promised land from Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-five. 25. As thy days thy strength shall be in measure. So each day you're going to have enough strength to get through that day. This is a pledge that He has made to all of His children. The promise of God's provision during the trial... And the promise of the reception of the crown of life to be given by those who love Him is a rock-solid, remarkable promise that I hope all of us base our lives on. So, that's the summarized teaching of verse 12. We're done. We're going no further. It encapsulates many of the thoughts that James has brought up already in his epistle And what we see encapsulated neatly and memorably in verse 12, I encourage us all to memorize that one. What we see encapsulated neatly and memorably in verse 12 is actually what we see peppered all throughout redemptive history in a theme that is called the wilderness. The biblical theme of wilderness is what we want to give our attention to for the remainder of our time. And I hope that you find consolation in this. The wilderness is actually a very prominent theme in Scripture. It's not just a short period of 40 years that the Israelites had to endure after being brought out of slavery of Egypt and before they were brought into God's land of promise that was flowing with milk and honey. Yes, our minds might immediately think of that narrative and it might be the one that is most popular because that's what we were taught in Sunday school so often, but actually it started way before Israel was a nation and had its own corporate identity. In the Bible, wandering in the wilderness is actually the experience of every one of God's children who have been brought into the family of God. If you have received His promise of future salvation but have yet to experience it in its fullness, then what you are experiencing right now is wilderness. The experience of wilderness in the Bible is not simply a geographical reality for the nation of Israel. It's a theological reality to be experienced by every one of God's blood-bought children. So let's set the scene with Abraham. Before Israel was a nation, there's Abraham. Think about Abraham. Abraham was called by God to leave his country of origin. He was called to leave his pagan ways behind and head out for a far country while following Yahweh to an inheritance that was promised to him and his descendants. Now, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but okay, I guess it might be worth it, maybe Abraham reasons. It sounds good until you realize that the word inheritance is referring to something that is received after your life is ended you don't receive an inheritance until after there has been a death and so Hebrews the writer of Hebrews says this by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise Abraham although dwelling in the land that God has promised to him, was called a sojourner in Genesis 20 verse 1. A sojourner is someone who wanders and lives in temporary dwelling places like tents. And so Genesis 20 verse 1 says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Why? Why? Because the author of Hebrews tells us that he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder was God. And a few verses later, the author of Hebrews tells us that he, along with the other patriarchs, desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and He has prepared a city for them. So Abraham actually sets the pattern for all of his many sons to follow in. So let's hit fast forward and notice a man named Joseph. Joseph might be the prototypical suffering-in-the-wilderness character that we read about in the Old Testament. Think about Joseph. He's loved by his father, but he's despised by his brothers to the degree that they toss him in a pit, they sell him into slavery to be carted off to a foreign land. He's betrayed by his brothers, but he's sustained by God throughout his personal time of exile. And eventually he's raised up to a place of prominent power so that once in that position, he can then extend to his brothers the grace that they need in order to be preserved during the lifetime of famine. Famine. And guess what? The word on the street is that there's bread in Egypt. And indeed, there is bread in Egypt And the reason why there's bread in Egypt is because of Joseph's miraculous foresight to store up grain during the years of abundance. And so the brothers themselves now sojourn down into a foreign land in order to eat bread from their long-lost brother that Joseph was offering to them. Joseph knows what's going on, but they don't. And instead of condemning his brothers and pouring out vengeance upon them, he essentially says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they've done. And he invites them in to come and feast with him. And not only were his brothers sustained and preserved, but the entire nation was provided for. Joseph experienced the wilderness, and so did all of God's chosen people. They were shaped and molded and remained steadfast in God's sovereign plans, even while in the foreign land of wilderness. And speaking of eating bread that was provided miraculously in unexpected fashion, we can't help but think of Moses. The story of Moses is absolutely amazing. Moses, unlike Joseph, who started with a magnificent robe, Moses was abandoned in the Nile River. Talk about humble beginnings. But from those humble beginnings, he is rescued and brought into the household of power, and rose through the ranks. And things were looking up for Moses, until, that is, he is called by God to enter into a 40-year training period in the wilderness." in order to be used by God to eventually lead God's people through waters of salvation that they could cross by the sea and make haste toward the promised land. But in between slavery and promised land, there was a place where he had formerly cut his teeth in when he was receiving ministry training. And now, this time, he wouldn't be alone, but all of God's people would be collectively wandering in the wilderness. And if you read Exodus through Deuteronomy, you will see that it was a pretty rough ride. But even in the wilderness, what happens? Bitter water was turned sweet. Bread in the form of manna miraculously appeared every morning to sustain them. Water even gushed out of a rock when it was struck. Talk about a foreshadowing of Christ when He was pierced and after His death by the Roman spear, as blood and water flowed down to the ground to cry out like the innocent blood of that of Abel's. So he got 40 years in the wilderness for training, then 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before he gets ready to pass through another body of water, the river Jordan, to begin traversing through the valleys and the peaks of the promised land. But the real inheritance for Moses wasn't geographical. And so with some of his last breaths, he blesses each of the twelve tribes of Israel. He goes up on a mountain, and we're told that he dies with his eyes undimmed and his vigor unabated. He remained steadfast during the trial. His life was completely lived in exile and wilderness and was steadfast up until his last breath. So now, let's fast forward to when God's people were actually in the geographical location of promise. And let's look at David. David, although living in the land of promise, seemingly is always on the run in the wilderness. It's almost as if his call to the kingship was a call to suffer. Think about how it all starts for David. There is a jealous and disobedient king named Saul who has David on the run. David has to flee to the strongholds in the wilderness... In the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David was a man on the run in the wilderness, but who was sustained all throughout by God's sovereign hand. So we read about this in 1 Samuel 23:25. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, And he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'on. Read the Psalms. He writes almost all of these Psalms, mostly while in the desert. One third of our Psalms in the Scriptures are Psalms of lament. What in the world are you doing, God? Why are you doing this to me? Or why are you allowing this to happen to me? I'm your anointed king. Why are you allowing this to happen to me or to your people? Why are those who are opposed to you seemingly getting away with it? This is how it all started and continued for David. And then, just like Joseph, David is betrayed by his own flesh and blood. Absalom, David's own son, has all the hearts of the men of Israel pining after his, and they actually want to destroy David. But David knows that while even on the run, He's in the middle of God's plans for him and he knows that he will ultimately be vindicated because even if he dies, even if Absalom gets his way, even if he dies, David writes this in Psalm 16, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. You made known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So fast forward to the time of Elijah. Elijah, the Tishbite, is summoned by God to be his mouthpiece to speak a word of judgment on the seventh king of Israel because Ahab, quote, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all those before him. End quote. And Ahab wasn't having God's message coming to him. And yes, the newly appointed prophet, Elijah sees a miraculous victory when fire consumed an offering that was doused with water three times over in 1 Kings 18. But in 1 Kings 19, we see him cowering in fear and running for his life. And where does he run to? It says this, Then he was afraid, and then he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. Ever been there? It's a dark time. And in that wilderness is where God provided water and bread in a miraculous fashion, much like He did in 1 Kings 17, when the Lord provided water from a dried up brook, and He was fed bread that looked like it was coming down from heaven when it arrived via a raven. And so in Acts or in verse Kings 19, Elijah is sulking and it says under a broom tree and an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake, pieces of bread, right? On hot stones in a jar of water and he ate and drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is, is way too great for you. You need some sustenance for this journey that you're on in this wilderness, Elijah. And he rose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food, get this, 40 days and 40 nights. Where does he go? To Horeb. Mount Horeb, the mount of God, which is Mount Sinai. People, you can't make this stuff up. Elijah is walking in the wilderness to Mount Horeb all alone. This is unbelievably astounding. Why? Because this is the exact same terrain that Moses walked in. Elijah is perhaps walking in the exact same footprints that Moses once left when he for 40 years traversed in the exact same location for many years before. Maybe Elijah, although he's alone, maybe he's consoled by the thoughts that he's not really alone If somebody had walked this path before, maybe what was happening to Elijah wasn't uncommon. And now let's look at another prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah's entire life, from conception until death, was a call to be a prophet that no one listened to. Before you even born, (laughs) this is what's recorded in chapter 1. Jeremiah's message sounded like this, Uh, people listen, judgment is coming down from the north as Babylon approaches, response, yeah, right, Jeremiah, shut your mouth, actually, you know, we know what we should do with you, you should probably be put to death. And so what we're going to do is we're going to collectively going to do to you that which Joseph's brothers did to him, and into the pit with you, into the cistern. And so they took Jeremiah, cast him into the cistern of Micaiah, and there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. That's what you get for being God's prophet. That is the proverbial experience of the prophets of God from first to last. So we're not surprised when we see the last of the Old Testament prophets being ridiculed by the masses and living in the wilderness enter into the biblical narrative John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a man surviving in the wilderness, living off locusts and honey and dressed in camel's hair. People just laugh at him. They think he's crazy. But John the Baptist knows something. He thinks of himself as someone like a Moses who's calling his audience to repentance, to turn from their sins and start pursuing the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, like Moses, is pointing people to the greater Joshua who could actually ultimately lead them into the ultimate promised land after they spend their entire lives of walking in a wilderness And who might that Lamb of God be that John is pointing to? Well, it's the final prophet of God. It's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And think about Jesus for a moment as the ultimate fulfillment of all these things I just talked about. What was his experience on the earth? Well, like Abraham, he left his throne in heaven. He left his home in heaven, and he sojourned to a far country called the earth. And even when he was just a baby, what was his experience? Well, he, like Moses and Joseph, ended up down in Egypt, not because he was sold into slavery, but because he was trying to escape the jealous and the wicked king who slaughtered babies, like when Saul tried to slaughter the recently ordained youngest son of Jesse, the boy King David. But when that wicked king died, Jesus was brought up into the land of promise and was eventually baptized by John and officially commissioned into a prophetic ministry of the preaching of the gospel that many people wouldn't tolerate, kind of like they didn't tolerate the message of Jeremiah. But after Jesus is initiated into a life of ministry, what happens to him? He's immediately led out into the desert wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How many days? Forty. How many nights? Forty. And what's the first temptation? Hey, you're hungry after all that fasting, right? Why don't you turn these stones into bread? Get some sustenance like all those other prophets. But what does Jesus say? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The bread that sustained Jesus in the wilderness wasn't manna, but it was coming down from heaven's mouth. And it was the very word of God from the book of Deuteronomy. And when he passes that wilderness temptation, he himself actually becomes the living bread that came down from heaven to feed us all who are in our wilderness. He, like Joseph, is offering life-giving bread to all of us who, like Joseph's brothers, absolutely do not deserve it and could never earn it, but come desperately seeking it anyway with nothing in our hands to offer. And with our empty hands, we actually take hold of the bread of life and we eat it because of the grace and the mercy that's resulted in our forgiveness that's been offered to us like when Joseph offered it to his brothers. He too, like David, is rejected by his own flesh and blood. His brothers didn't believe in him, James being one of them. He too, like David, is betrayed and abandoned by those who once followed him, Judas Iscariot. And instead of being thrown into a pit like Joseph and Jeremiah, he's lifted up, uplifted like the bronze snake on Moses' staff in the desert that when lifted up and when looked upon would save people from the deadly venom of the serpent bites that were attacking them. And when he's lifted up, he was pierced for our transgressions and died for our sins and blood for our atonement and water for our cleansing came pouring out. People, he is what all of those suffering in the wilderness were pointing to. He left heaven, and He sojourned here, so that having accomplished all the work here given to Him by His Father, He could blaze a trail for us to follow Him, as we set our eyes on Him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, as He always leads us in triumphal procession into our future inheritance, which is the ultimate promised land. So... Heed the heralded news of the author of the Hebrews. When you are in your trial, listen to Hebrews 12, 12, when he says, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Pick up your cross and follow Him, then hear the clear call of Peter who knew for certain that he wasn't going to be surprised by fiery trials. He says this, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And James says to us, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. God, our experience with life is one trial after another. But I pray that we'd receive the comfort that this text has given to us. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, who remains steadfast under it, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God, we are all wandering in the wilderness right now. But we're following our exalted head into the ultimate promised land. And so there's going to be times of difficulties that we experience. But day by day and with each passing moment, you will give us strength to meet our trials. God, as we move into a time of communion... As we sing this song and as we're led through the two simple elements of the bread and the cup, God, help us to remember that you are the living bread that came down from heaven. And this is, this is the nutrient-rich meal that we need to take in so that we can have strength for our journey, just like Elijah needed in First in Kings 19. God, I pray that we would see the ultimate fulfillment of all the wilderness wandering taking place in the life of Jesus who has gone before us. So God, I pray that you be honored and glorified even as we stand and sing now. It's in Jesus' name we pray.